The final person I interviewed for this program was Miss Barbara Rogers, and to begin, she described a 62-year-old man in her practice with mantle cell lymphoma. He's a very interesting gentleman with mantle cell lymphoma. He was initially treated when he first got diagnosed with our hyperCVAD and tolerated quite well. He did end up being readmitted for episodes of neutropenic fever, as is very common in that combination, but overall felt well. And after finishing therapy, then received a weekly times four course of rituximab as a pseudo-maintenance after finishing therapy. The idea of going for an autologous transplant was discussed with him, but he declined. And so he just said, give me the maintenance, and then let's see how things go. So he was observed then and for about a year. And then when his disease recurred, he was then treated with bortezomib. Got a good response to bortezomib. And at that point, again, stopped therapy, did quite well. But as is expected with mantle cell, he did have another recurrence and opted to go on a clinical trial. Got a response, quite a good response actually, was in a complete response at that point. And so we observed him then for a little over a year when his disease returned again. And he's been on other treatments, including arbendamustine. And then his disease recurred while on treatment with arbenda, interestingly by a couple of epitrochular nodes and none elsewhere. So when we had a biopsy, it did show that he had progression of his disease. And that was radiated, but he was also started afterwards on abrutinib and has done quite well with the abrutinib. His disease has been responding. He does not have any lymph nodes elsewhere, just that one little area in the epitrochular area. And he continues on therapy, hoping that we can keep him on for a very long time and hopefully continue to manage his disease. So about how long ago did he start on the abrutinib? He started about four months ago. And again, can you kind of talk about his general condition and quality of life and lifestyle at that point? Actually, he was feeling quite well and really didn't have many symptoms. He just happened to come in for his follow-up appointment and said, oh, and by the way, I felt this little thing here on my arm. And when we restaged him, there wasn't any evidence of other disease, just that area in the epitrochular area. And so that's why we sent him for a biopsy to see what it was, which did come back as mantle cell lymphoma. He, like I said, didn't have other disease elsewhere. He was still active. Working? He retired early in his diagnosis with concerns related to his on and off again treatments he would require, especially when he started with the IR hyperCVAD. He knew that was difficult for him to work. So he stopped working there and has not really had an active employment since then. What kind of work did he do? He did really heavy labor. He was a laborer, and so that was real difficult for him to be able to do any of those type of employment. Who does he live with, and what's his sort of circle of loved ones and friends? He lives by himself. He usually drives himself. We rarely see anyone accompany him. And when he does have problems, he usually figures out a way to get in. But again, rarely does he have someone who accompanies him in for treatment or for visits. And he doesn't really talk much about his support systems. He is an active smoker, doesn't want to quit, doesn't want to go to transplant. He has clear opinions as far as what he should and shouldn't do as far as his follow-up care and how to proceed with managing his health. And even when we have multiple discussions about the impact of smoking, he just says he has no plans on quitting. When you talk to him about the issue of smoking, what are some of your concerns that you raise? 
So, well, he's another one who has recurrent issues with sinusitis. He's been to multiple specialists, and everyone tells him, you know, there's not much I can do until you stop smoking, and he just says, that's not going to happen. And then he also has had issues with his lungs, with having a couple pneumonias and bronchitis. Again, knows that they're related probably at least some component of them with his smoking, but he doesn't want to stop. Smoking gives him enjoyment, and he has no plans to quit. We just kind of review the impact that it has on his potential and his quality of life and other his health. And he pretty much will say to me, yeah, I hear all that, but it's not going to happen. And when you started the Ubertinib, what are some of the sort of patient education points that you went through with him? So the first thing we talked about was potential impact on his counts. And we do watch counts, at least in the beginning, to see what they do. And some people can have some nausea, other symptoms, We do talk about the impact of potential for some drug interaction. So I pretty much tell them I want you to make sure your pharmacy knows you're on this drug and so they can do drug interaction checks every time. It's a new enough drug that while there are some things in the package insert, we just don't really know enough about some of those interactions to know for sure. So I want him to go to one pharmacy, except for obviously the specialty pharmacy where he's getting the drug from, and how to take the drug so that he knows how to take it each day and how to purchase it, how to obtain it from the pharmacy. And the biggest issue we talk about, at least initially, is about the cost of the drug, because all these new drugs are expensive, and all the insurances have different coverages, and we don't always know what their copay is going to be. So we want them to make sure that they don't just automatically say, no, I'm not going to take this drug because of cost, when potentially there may be things we can do to help get them some support from different agencies to help pay for the copay. In this case, what kind of issue was that with him? Luckily, he didn't have a problem. His copay has only been $15, so that was not a problem for him. But we do have some patients where their copay has been hundreds, and we've had a few, like with some of the other oral drugs, where it's been even in the thousands. So we just work with them trying to find support to help them pay for their copay. What about issues of bleeding and the question about having procedures done while being on Ibrutinib? So we usually, when patients are having procedures, we will usually stop them. We haven't had patients who have gone and perhaps not told us that they were going for procedures outside, but because of some of the data, we will ask them to stop while they're going for treatment. And we did have him stop the abrutinib while he's getting radiation therapy. Couldn't find much data about the use of abrutinib during radiation therapy, so we thought it'd be important to stop the abrutinib during that treatment just to make sure he didn't have any issues during it. So what's happened to him since he's been on the treatment? So with the treatment, actually, his counts have done quite well. So we backed off and just do the monthly counts. And he has had long-term issues with sciatica. Most recently, he started complaining of more mid-back discomfort as compared to lower back and was trying to get an MRI done of his spine to look to see, make sure that wasn't part of his disease. He's never had disease in his bones, but we wanted to make sure took a while. He kept refusing to go for it, wanted to see if it got better on its own. So finally just convinced him, actually last week, to get the MRI. So I expect results this week to see what is going on in his spine that could be causing discomfort. All right, let's talk about your 36-year-old patient with Hodgkin lymphoma. So he's a gentleman who was diagnosed in his early 30s when he was first diagnosed with Hodgkin lymphoma. And symptoms at the time primarily related to itching and some enlarged nodes. And he had the biopsy done, which showed that he had Hodgkin lymphoma, nodular sclerosis, Hodgkin lymphoma. 
and was treated with standard ABVD for six cycles and did quite well and went into a full remission. Then about a year and a half later, he started complaining again of itching. Didn't notice any enlarged lymph nodes, but was really having a lot of itching. So he wasn't quite due for another set of restaging. He was getting restaged at that point every six months. And so restaging was done and was found to have new lymphadenopathy that he didn't have previously. A biopsy was done, which showed he had recurrence of his disease. So at that point, the plan was for him to go for an autologous transplant. He got two cycles of ice, did quite well with it. He had a good response and then went on to an autologous transplant. He again did well for about, again, another year and a half, and then showed evidence. Again, started having the itching back and showed new lymphadenopathy and demonstrated he had recurrence of disease. And so he was then started on Brituximab Vindotin and has tolerated it very well and really hasn't had issues with his counts. Had some initial response with improvement of his itching and decreased size in his lymphadenopathy, although they didn't go down to baseline. So he still had some enlarged nodes, but they had improved on the bevindotin. How long has he been on the bevindotin? About six months. Can you again talk about sort of what his quality of life was like at the time you started the bevindotin, how he was spending his time? So he does not work and was actually, when we first started around that time, he was engaged to be married. And while on treatment, they broke up during that time frame. But as far as his physical concerns, the biggest issue for him was the itching, much more than any lymphadenopathy. Itching was his primary, I guess, annoyance from his disease. And that did improve when he started treatment. So he did feel better. Even though the nodes didn't go down to zero, he knew that they were smaller, but he felt better because the itching had improved. How do you explain to patients why they have itching or pruritus? So we talked to them about that it's not actually that they have lymphoma in their skin. It's more that some of the cytokines that get released from the disease is impacting their skin and making them itch. Itching in a lot of patients with lymphoma, I seem to see a lot more in Hodgkin lymphoma. also see a lot in some of the T-cell lymphomas, but it can be very, very annoying to them and difficult to manage. We try lots of things. It's very individualized what might work for each patient but it can be a bit difficult sometimes to manage while we're beginning their treatment. What kinds of things do you try? Sometimes we'll try topical steroids. Some patients tell us that some of the topical diphenhydramine may work. At times we may try some other steroids, some oral steroids, if we're just trying to get them through until we're ready to start another treatment, such as if they're going on a clinical trial, we may need to do something to bridge them until we can get their treatment started. And so we'll try different things, but there are sometimes very difficult to find something that may work until we start treatment that will actually manage their disease. What do you assess as his understanding of his long-term prognosis, and has he had any questions for you about that? He's quite clear. There has been some discussion with him regarding going to an allogeneic transplant, and his feeling is until the other things stop working, he doesn't want to do an allotransplant. He understands very clearly what the potential risks are. But his feeling is, let's keep trying other things until the time comes to go for allotransplant. There was some difficulty also in finding a donor for him, which kind of increased his anxiety about going to transplant when he knew that may not be the best match for him. So he's already had an autologous transplant, 
and as you say, that this topic has come up about an aloe. How do you explain to patients sort of what the difference is between those kinds of approaches? So the first thing we talk about is where the cells come from, their own cells versus getting them from someone else. And the biggest issue relates to allotransplants transplants related to potential risk for them to get graft-versus-host. Also, trying to explain to them that graft-versus-host could also give them the benefit of demonstrating graft-versus-lymphoma effect. So it's not always a bad thing. A little bit's good, but not too much. So trying to help them understand that component to it. But they do hear very clearly from the transplanters what the potential risks are long-term, their risk from dying from the treatment. And so they go in pretty much with open eyes, but it's kind of tough to weigh all those decisions when trying to look at the potential risks of a transplant versus the fact we have all these new treatments coming out and trying to decide, do I look for another treatment that may be in the forefront or do I go for the gold ring trying to get cured of this disease? So when he got started on the and how did you explain to him sort of what brentuximabidotin is and how it works and what kind of toxicities are associated with it? So we talked about targeted therapies, about CD30 and the importance of CD30 and how this drug works specifically. Some patients are better able to understand that than others. And I think we have a full range of patients. Some of them want to know all about it, how it works, and they'll do searches on their own trying to understand it. We have other patients who just say, can it work for me? If you think it's going to work, that's all I need to know. Let's go ahead. So you have a wide range of people as far as what they want to know about understanding it. Included in that, we have a big range of people who, as far as how much they want to know about side effects, we require them to at least listen to the main side effects so that they can understand what we should know. They can be part of that process. But again, there'll be some patients who say, you know, just tell me what I have to do and, you know, I'll let my wife or my sister know about it, and they can take care of that for me. The protuximab and dotin, again, the major issues we think about, yes, you can affect the counts, but I think mostly about neuropathy and the impact on neuropathy, especially in patients who have previously had other drugs that may have left them with some neuropathy, especially post-transplant. So we help them to understand about that, the importance of telling us what level they have. We may need to make some dose modifications based on neuropathy. And then there are also rashes that can be seen with protuximab and Newton. And we haven't seen a huge number of them, but there are rashes that can occur. And it does vary the intensity based on the patient. And from your point of view, how did he do on the brentoximab and Newton, both in terms of side effects as well as disease? So he's tolerated very well, has not had any additional neuropathy. He actually didn't have much neuropathy to start with. He had a very little bit, which was present from previous treatments did not really have any additional neuropathy with the brituximab and dotin. As far as his disease, he did have improvement in his itching, and his nose did decrease in size, but he didn't go into a complete response with it. But he continues on therapy and overall is tolerating it acceptably. Now, you mentioned that he was engaged to be married and that that relationship ended. Did he discuss with you what happened, and was this while he was being treated? It was while he was on treatment. And he really hasn't said a whole lot about what happened during that time frame. He had, with all of these treatments, initially after the ABVD, he was able to go back to work. Then when he had recurrence, went to an autotransplant, he started thinking about what he was going to do if that didn't work. And when his disease recurred again, he opted to move in with his mother so that he could pretty much not have to worry about financially what was going to happen if he needed to be on all these treatments. I think that was hard for him to make that decision, but he knew it was best for him 
to be able to focus on receiving treatment during that time frame. Anything else you want to say about him? I think the main thing when I think of him is kind of the psychosocial issues he had to address, as well as the issues with him with itching and how much of a significant problem it's been. And he does try various things. I won't say that there's really been anything that's been a home run, except for treatment that works. And that's the main relief he gets when he needs to get some relief from his itching. And he also knows when his itching comes back, he'll immediately call saying, it's back again. Can we get another scan to see what's going on? Well, let's talk then, finish out with your 58-year-old patient with mycosis fungoides. So he's a gentleman who I met when he was on observation and was treating periodically his mycosis fungoides with skin-directed therapies. Primarily, that was clobetasol for management of his skin lesions, which he did quite well with. He also has, though, rheumatoid arthritis, which was very problematic for him with regarding his level of pain from it, and was also receiving rituximab on the rheumatoid arthritis schedule. And so the way that was being given was he'd get a single infusion, two weeks later get another infusion, and then he'd do that every six months. Tired it well, didn't have any problems with infusion reactions, and his rheumatoid arthritis was quite well under control with the rituximab. But what we were finding was that he was developing more problems with itching, again, another itching problem, related to his mycosis fungoides. His skin didn't look that bad, but he was having more problems with itching. Then this was in areas around previous lesions that we knew were his mycosis fungoides. And the itching was becoming more of a problem for him, so we opted to work towards treating him systemically so that he can get better control of the itching. And he was started on romadepsin. And at the point that he started the romadepsin, you can describe what his lifestyle was like and how he was spending his time and how he felt. So he works full-time in a factory as a manager and continues to work. And through all this, he's continued to work. We worked around his treatment schedule with his work schedule. And he tolerated the romadepsin quite well and really didn't have many side effects, didn't have problems with accounts, really just, you know, other than the time he had to arrange to be out of work, that was probably the biggest issue. He did not have full response. While his skin looked better on exam, the itching continued, and that continued to be a problem for him. What did you say to him about romadepsin in terms of what it was and what kinds of side effects it can cause? So we talked about the type of treatment that it was, and the importance of the schedule it is to receive, especially because he was used to rituximab and the way that was given. So it was a little bit of a bridge over for him. He understood a little more than I think other patients we have with mycosis fungoides who are going from the skin-directed therapies to a systemic therapy requires a little bit more information to help them understand why this might work better. What is the schedule administration for romadepsin? It's given weekly, three weeks in a row, and then a week off. So a 28-day schedule days 1, 8, and 15. And what kinds of side effects are seen with the drug? So again, can affect counts. He had a little bit of nausea the day of treatment. Never really sure, though, because he also had some issues with reflux, and I wasn't sure whether he maybe was from anxiety of having to come in for treatment, although he did not experience that when he came in for rituximab. But that seemed to be a little bit more of an issue on the days he came for treatment, so we did increase his meds. We also had him start a proton pump inhibitor, because that seemed to be affecting him a little bit. And 
he initially was wondering if some of the areas that were itching, could they be related to the impact of the area of infusion, but it really was around his skin lesions. And so we thought that it was not related to any of the infusions, but perhaps related to his disease. And what's his current situation? So most recently, we noticed that the itching had continued. While the skin lesions looked better, his itching was quite uncomfortable. So we've opted to send him over and have some photophoresis done, trying to see whether that may help the itching. There is some data showing that photophoresis may be beneficial in managing itching in patients with mycosis fungoides. So we're, he's actually been started not too long ago, but he has noticed an improvement in his itching with starting the therapy. How do you explain to patients sort of what mycosis fungoides is and what T-cell lymphoma is? So mycosis fungoides is a very different disease when you're used to dealing with more systemic lymphomas. Trying to explain to patients that it really is lymphoma in the skin and that while it may move more inward towards the lymph nodes, most of the patients do not have any impact on their nodes. And so we really focus treatment, at least initially, on the skin and use skin-directed therapies. Once we've exhausted those, or if for some reason they're not working very well, we may move to some of the other systemic therapies. It may be someone like this patient who had you know, more progression of his disease and his symptoms. Could also be have another lady who we started on therapy who couldn't reach her back. She had a lot of lesions on her back. And her husband, she's a primary care provider for her husband who has some issues with dementia And he used to apply it on her back, but he no longer could do that because he couldn't follow instructions. So she couldn't get on her back, so her back was really bothersome to her. So we opted to give her some systemic therapy to get it better under control. And we've had other patients who just for some reason, maybe the symptoms are bad enough or they're not able to manage the topical treatments or the lesions are just too widespread to be able to get adequate coverage. And so those are the reasons why I may go for systemic therapy as compared to the skin-directed therapies. So another treatment that's used in different types of T-cell lymphomas is pralotrexate. What's your experience with that? And again, what do you say to patients about to receive it? So my experience with pralotrexate primarily has been with peripheral T-cell lymphoma. And the biggest issue that I've seen with pralotrexate, yes, can affect the counts, but the biggest issue is oral mucositis and mouth sores and what happens with that and paying very close attention to it. It is given weekly for seven weeks, and so some patients may have, I think sometimes we get a false sense of security, we treat them for the whole cycle, we see them periodically. With pralotrexate, we keep a very close eye on their mouth, so we actually will look in their mouth with every week that they're getting treatment, make sure it's not getting too bad so we can make some adjustments early on. We have seen some patients that perhaps they didn't really say much about it for a few weeks, even though they were starting to get some mouth sores, and by the time they brought it to anyone's attention, got to the point where it was more severe, we had to hold their treatment. So we like trying to see them weekly, make early modifications before it gets more significant, and so that we can keep them on treatment. I think between the counts and the oral mucositis, those are the main things that we see with it. But by far, the biggest issue is the oral mucositis. And is there anything that you can do to either prevent or manage the mucositis? The old-fashioned salt and soda mouthwash, keeping their mouth nice and clean. We do give patients some type of magic mouthwash. We don't use the ones with antibiotics in them. We just use the ones that are more for comfort measures. But by keeping them eating and drinking, they seem to do better. And then making sure patients know that we want to know sooner rather than later if they start noticing anything going on in their mouth, not to wait until it's a big problem. 
and that we can make adjustments early and that will be do the best for managing their oral mucositis and keeping them on treatment. The biggest issue we have is patients are sometimes fearful that they're going to get taken off treatment if they tell us about a side effect. And we try and spin it the other way, saying we can do more to keep you on treatment if we can make some modifications early. So that hopefully they'll tell us sooner rather than... Because sometimes they do have some little bit of discomfort in between that week, and when they come back, may feel okay. And they just say, oh, yeah, my mouth's fine today.